Who Tells Your Story? In the Broadway hit Hamilton, one of the major themes is the idea that the person telling the story gets to decide everything about the narrative. For Alexander Hamilton, that meant a largely forgotten place in the nation's founding. His story of incredible triumph over lowly and difficult circumstances of his birth and his immigration to America, it never ranks alongside those of Washington or Jefferson. That's also true for this country's historically marginalized people. Other Americans get to tell their stories. And in modern terms, that means the media tell their stories. They decide what the majority hears about race and culture and class, and they determine how inequality, historically and in the modern sense, is communicated, how it's portrayed. Which means everyone gets a distorted picture of what reality looks like if you're one of these marginalized people. And even worse, the misunderstandings that emanate from distorted coverage, they can lead to even greater inequalities with greater consequences. Today, we have a story about the media's role in shaping how Americans feel about their neighbors and how a single word written in print, carjacking, helped usher in the modern era of reactionary fear of Black Americans. I'm Laura Weber-Davis. And I'm Stephen Henderson. From WDET in Detroit, this is Created Equal. This country, our courts are the great levelers. And that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We founded on the principle. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. I've been a member of the media in this country for 25 years and worked for some of the largest newspapers. As an African-American, that has always meant straddling two worlds. One, where I see and understand how news comes together, how stories get reported and edited and sent out into the world. The other is where I see how that news portrays the community I'm from and other communities that aren't part of the white American majority. Of course, there is a disconnect. I see all the time how disparate the press perception is of non-white communities and what I know about the people in those communities. And, of course, I know how hard media organizations try to both be aware of that disconnect and how to correct it. Uh, Stephen, let's go through some of the numbers here. I know that it's not going to surprise you that minorities are still vastly underrepresented in newsrooms. According to the American Society of News Editors, about 17% of reporters and editors in the newsroom are racial and ethnic minorities, which is a pretty great improvement in recent history, but it's still far different from the racial and ethnic makeup of this country. About 40% of the country counts itself among those groups. And that affects storytelling. I do think that often in the media, you look for something that is a little bit different, and sometimes that's race. That's Scott Bowles. He's a writer and teacher these days, but 25 years ago, he was a crime reporter for the Detroit News. 
It's a common understanding that the press is more interested in the unusual than it is in the mundane. The media tends to gravitate toward atypical victims, that the typical victims are often young and minorities and poor. And so the media tends to drift away from that because it's the norm. So dog bites man, no big deal. Man bites dog. That's a big story. That's a story. So often they'll cover crimes that really aren't different in what, in terms of what happened, but they are different in terms of who they happened to. And certainly we are guilty of that. Back in the early 1990s, Scott started to notice a trend in violent crime in the city that no one else was reporting. This was a time when gang activity was on the rise and the idea of marauding bands of black criminals preying on white victims was a powerful and fear-inspiring dynamic in popular culture. And that fear can lead to much more dire consequences when it becomes the power behind a push for change or, worse, gets written into legislation that's reactionary. The crime that Scott Bowles was noticing became part of a massive legislative response to inner-city crime. So drugs and theft and violence, and that would see millions of black men imprisoned over the next couple of decades. And that devastated families and communities. It also started its own conversations and inspired its own coverage about mass incarceration and its effects on cities and culture. It's a cycle that spins outward and it becomes more cumbersome to deal with. And it seems like there's little opportunity to go back and correct what initially went wrong. So think of it as a giant elephant in the newsroom. But the enormity of the elephant begins with a simple wrinkle or fold of its skin. Like when crime writer Scott Bowles walked into a Detroit police precinct and noticed a trend. Every day we would go into the police station and they would have waiting for us a list of the major crimes that night. Murders, rapes, armed robberies. And so what you would do is you would choose the most heinous of the crime or crimes, and that would be your day's assignment. And in 91, I began noticing in the packet of reports that we would get a report entitled R-A-U-D-A-A. That's all it said. And I was seeing more and more of those. So finally, I asked a captain, what does R-A-U-D-A-A mean? And he said it's a combination of robbery armed, unauthorized driving away of an automobile. And we began to map out where all of these R-A-U-D-A-A's are. And they were everywhere. We had 40 dots all over Detroit. And so I told the editor, let's do a big project. Let's do this. And they said, well, we can do that, but we cannot say R-A-U-D-A-A. We were considering criminal commandeering, auto hijacking. And finally, I think it was EJ just said the word carjacking. And we both lit up and we decided that's going to be the term we're going to use. And so we wrote that and it was a huge story. Gun-toting thugs have struck again. Later that night, the local news picked it up and called it carjacking. 
But a few days after that, Ted Koppel used the word carjacking. And that was it. A new crime in America, carjacking. FBI statistics show that automobile... A carjacker pulls up to you at a red light and says, in effect, your car or your life. In Detroit, they call it carjacking. And it's become a serious problem in most major cities. Hardest hit, it appears, is Detroit, where there were at least 13 carjackings... After that, it became a national phenomenon. Carjacking kind of became like home invasion, where it was the crime du jour. And once it hit Nightline, it was over. Then the Associated Press picked it up and wrote a story, and they said, no one on the street as carjacking. And I thought, wow, I've got street cred. But it really was just a combination of the word car and hijacking, and it took off. And when the feds made it a federal crime, now you see it everywhere. So let's talk about the case that you used to highlight the problem, Ruth Wall. Do you remember any of the details that surrounded that story? Well, one of the things that I cynically noted is that she was white. She was a 22-year-old who refused to give up her Suzuki and was shot to death, I believe. When it was over, Arlene Harris's friend Ruth Wall was dead. He said to Ruthie to get out the truck, I want your truck, bitch. And then he just started shooting. Well, once you have a victim who looks like an innocent bystander, a child, in Detroit, sometimes that might be a white suburban kid. It gets a lot of play. Once that happened, it was going to be TV news. Everybody was going to be on it. So we had to get it out there before everyone else did. And the only way we could make it different from the way everyone else was going to cover it is to show that it was part of a larger trend. And, you know, a guy had came up on me real fast and had a gun. And he told me to get out the car. I opened up the door, and the first thing I heard was this man saying, give me your keys. You're not safe anywhere. You know, that's why I uh, pray before I get in my car. Police cannot be on every corner. So Detroit drivers are carrying guns, purchasing security systems, and hoping this random crime does not hit them like it hit Ruth Wall. Well, cynically, I noticed the same thing you did. Um, she is an attractive, young, white woman from the Burbs. Basically, the type of person that gets a lot of attention when something bad happens to her in the city. I asked myself the same questions about if you highlight this person and this bad thing that happened to her and her family, does it necessarily create a, an extra level of fear for, you know, anywhere outside in the Burbs to come mm -hmm. into the city? Because... I can really remember the 90s, the 80s and the 90s specifically, white folks were afraid of Detroit in a very significant way. And it seems like this would kind of put the exclamation point on that idea. Absolutely. And we in the media certainly are guilty for preying upon fears. I absolutely think there was a component that if the victim were an innocent bystander or as the press often portrays it, a white suburbanite, it will be better read. So I don't know. Is it more important to get readers to read it so that they know about the problem, or does it have a different effect? Does it alarm them and scare them? 
Heavy media coverage has fueled public fears. Oh, so scared. It definitely has altered where I go and how I go and what time I go. In the month of August alone, there were more than 50 carjackings in the Detroit suburbs and a whopping 325 in the city. What we found was that the average carjack victim was only three miles from their home, and 75% of them were women, and most of them were sitting at red lights, waiting for the light to change, and somebody pulled a gun and pulled them out of it. At one point during those, if you were stopped in the middle of the night, the police said, if you don't feel safe, you can run that light. Right. I'd so never that's heard like a, that said before. That's a thing. That's still a thing. I mean, and it, <laughs> that was like people from Detroit that I became friends with would be like, when you go home, you just don't stop at the reds. Nobody's around. You don't want to yep. be caught at a red. Just treat it like a yield. <laughs> and exactly. keep going. And while that seemed like, okay, that makes sense, and that's like a thing that's been around in the city for, you know, a couple decades – now that I work here and paying a lot more attention to the city, it feels you're basically saying this is a lawless city and you don't have to That's pay attention right. to the law. And therefore, it was, it's like a city that it's okay to maltreat. That's right. It was the first time I had ever heard a police agency say, if you don't feel safe, go ahead and break the law. And you can bet back in 91, people barely slowed down. They really did turn the stoplight into a yield sign in Detroit. And that's what I mean when I say that as a crime writer in Detroit, you always feel self-conscious about it because you don't know if you are exacerbating the problem or if you're highlighting it. But while it's insane that you don't have to stop at a red light, what's the alternative for the police to say you have to stay at risk if you don't feel safe? I don't know, but that's always been a problem covering crime. You don't know if you're making it worse or if you're actually helping address it. Authorities don't know how to stop carjackings. They can only warn drivers to constantly be alert. Once we had that big project, there was a spike in the number of carjackings. And I don't know if it's because we had given it a name, we had made it popular whether these were copycat crimes. But briefly, we had a spike in carjackings after the project, and that captain let me know that. So I've always been a, a bit torn about that. Did we make it hip? Did we give Detroit another scar for launching yet another crime wave? Authorities can only guess why carjacking is on the increase, but it may be because breaking into a car can damage it. But it was amazing that once we came up with the name, it kind of took on a life of its own. Thank you to writer Scott Bowles for telling us that story. A vision of a violent, untrustworthy black America has been the narrative in many ways since this country's inception. But there is a counter-narrative to that dynamic that's also important. We've always seen blacks and other ethnic minority groups try to seize control of their own stories in their own ways as an answer to the more prevalent narrative of mainstream media. The struggle of these counter-narratives has always been to get that reporting and that message out to larger audiences, to get out into the mainstream. We need all kinds of people 
to read our site in order for it to be successful. That's Raina Kelly. She's the managing editor of The Undefeated, a new website through ESPN that writes about sports and music and culture, decidedly from the perspective of black journalists. We seek to show black life in all its glory, holistically, 360 degrees. You know, we are not going to be 24 hours, seven days a week of what I call, because if you see it, I call it in mainstream media, um, ghetto gloom. That's all you ever see. Yeah. You know, if there's a special story that's above the fold, <laughs> it's going to break your heart, right? And then if those are the only stories you see and you are not black or you are not from another world, you don't know black people, you assume that this is how all black people live. So if you don't have that balance that Raina is talking about there, what you end up with is a more singular narrative that's not just wrong because it's too simplistic, it's dangerous because it can inspire fear. Stephen, I want to go back to this idea of a single word, rhetoric, if you will, as being really effective in our society. During Scott Bowles' story, we heard a segment from a local reporter saying, gun-toting thugs are at it again. (laughs) The word thugs itself has become a real buzzword in the media that sets off alarm bells for a lot of people because it usually means young black men. We almost never hear white people described as thugs when they're in groups, right? Uh, Individual white people sometimes will be described as a thug if they are out doing things that are violent and unexplained. But it's groups of black men oftentimes not doing anything uh, that that get described as, as thugs because of the way they look, because of the way they walk, maybe because of the way that they are dressed. And so that word has become very raced in our society. I think uh, there's no question that we we need journalists and we need newspapers to pay more attention to the crime that does happen in minority communities against minorities, right? This this so-called black-on-black crime, which is a, a, a very loaded word, doesn't really describe accurately what, what is happening in those communities. But, but the idea of getting to what is accurately happening in the, those communities, the idea of trying to understand what it is about black communities that uh, subjects them more to violence than, than other uh, communities, that's really important. And do you think that if the reporting is done right, it leads to answers that don't point towards stop-and-frisk reaction, but rather point to um, education funding, attention to neighborhoods. I mean, how do you— that's the, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the pipe dream, Laura. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah, that, that understanding would, would lead you to different kinds of conclusions. I mean, uh, if you think about it, the news itself should be leading us to different conclusions. We've right. incarcerated more people over the last 20 or 30 years in America than we ever have in American history and more than almost any other nation on the planet has ever endeavored to incarcerate. And we still see tremendous rates and incidences of violence and hopelessness and isolation in these communities. It hasn't solved – putting people in jail has not solved the problems that we see in these areas. But ideally, deeper reporting about these communities and what goes on in them and what the lives are like for the people who live in them also will point us to what the solutions are, what the deeper solutions are. Why not fix education? Why not fix job training? Why not uh, uh, sew communities together instead of driving them apart with some of the policies that we've that we've had in the past? Uh, 
if there is a chance to move us to a space where those solutions are more palatable, it is information and understanding about those dynamics. So my last question will be a simple one about shrinking newsrooms. How does a newsroom overcome having to chase the daily grind of this crime happened here and this crime happened here, rather than saying, you know what, we're going to have this reporter just cover the justice system? There's no question that all of us in the news business face tremendous economic pressures that we've never seen before. Uh, and, and I do describe them as economic pressures. They are not readership pressures. Uh, pressures. There are more people reading newspapers, for instance, today uh, than, than there ever have been in the history of, of readership. It, that, this is quite simply a leadership issue. It is a leadership issue in newsrooms. Editors and publishers need to be able to say, here's what's important. Here's what matters. And they have to believe that ultimately – the salvation of for the industry's financial future runs through quality journalism, runs through journalism that matters, that changes people's minds, that changes policy, that, that gets us to that deeper understanding. After all, that is the primary distinction between a major news organization and, say, a blogger, is that capacity to get deeper, to go further, and to, to get to this idea of trying to understand why things happen as opposed to just telling people that they did happen. On the next Created Equal, we'll talk about how elected officials used a prison riot to launch the war on drugs. Nixon has one question and one question only when he hears of this massacre at Attica, which is, is this a black business? Created Equal is a podcast from WDET in Detroit. The executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Our producer is Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our engineers are Sam Bobian and Connor Anderson. Our theme is by Will Sessions. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for listening. WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.